Uh, it's a little different sitting up here this week than it was last week. Having met many of you and, and heard a little about your practice, um, and gotten a sense of some of you as people. It's different. It's nice. I'm sure it's different for you too. I kind of dropped in on you last week. Surprise arrival. Was that guy sitting up there? So uh, tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about craving. Good old craving. It's uh, worth talking about. Uh, It's said by the Buddha to be the cause of suffering. Tanha and the Pali craving. And the Buddha talked about there being uh, three types of craving. Uh, Craving for sense experience. uh, Craving for becoming. And craving for unbecoming. I'm going to go into what those are about. But first, I'd like to reflect a little on why we crave, what the root of this craving is, this craving for uh, experience, for uh, sense experience, a craving to be something or other, to be this or that, or to not be something that we feel that we are. And the, according to the Buddha, the root of this craving, the cause of this craving is ignorance, is not seeing things the way they are. When we see things clearly with wisdom, insight, uh, this craving ceases. So we're um, looking for fulfillment, looking for happiness, looking for well-being, much of the time in objects and experiences. And you can just reflect a little on the process of meditation. Is there any craving for experience? I mean, I think in our culture, more than others, I don't know, 
but we tend to be experienced junkies. We, we love uh, compelling experiences. Uh, and it's not that it, we can't have wonderful experiences, but we seem to think that there's some kind of going to be some lasting uh, satisfaction that comes from this or that experience. And it, uh, often that's because we experience wonderful things sometimes. You're out in nature and you feel some kind of letting down of something that was held. You sometimes feel expansive. You get to the top of a mountain, there's an incredible view and you feel really different. Or you've been struggling in meditation, you go into the dining hall, there's some delicious food and you're eating it and you feel yourself relax. There's a sense of ease. The mistake we often make is that we fix, is we sort of, uh, we believe it's the experience which is the kind of the fundamental cause of that sense of openness. For example, at the top of the mountain. We think, oh, I need the top of the mountain in order to feel that way. There are a lot of causes and conditions that came together to contribute to this experience of openness or a feeling like yourself. This feeling easeful. But one thing that the Buddha was pointing to is that that openness, that ease is available to you. It's in a sense what you are. And certain conditions contribute to you tasting that. In various ways, tasting some aspect of that. problem with those mountaintop experiences, and they're wonderful in and of themselves, they're fine, is that when we're not on the mountaintop, we tend to think and feel a lack. And to plan our next trip to the mountaintop and to spend a lot of time planning it. So it's because we think that that openness is located in the experience of the mountaintop that this whole um, dis-ease of not being there is created. You know, um, in, uh, in the old Zen stories, there's a lot of stories about people getting enlightened while they're eating. 
And I always sort of thought that was interesting. And I think part of the reason that might be the case is because when we're eating, usually there's some kind of letting down, especially if we've been working hard practicing. And then, oh, there's some comforting food. And all of a sudden, we just kind of relax a bit. We're not trying to get anywhere. There's the spoon. There's the food on it. And just there's a kind of moment of But that doesn't mean that if you just plan to eat eight meals a day, you're going to get enlightened faster. So you could take it as, oh, eating is the cause. But it's actually that letting go of the search. When you're at the top of the mountaintop, there's nowhere else to go. You've arrived. You're there, you're here, and there isn't that movement of desire for anything, and it feels amazing. to say anything after that. (laughs) I should just ring the bell and leave. So, you know, when, when, um, and I think somebody said this earlier in the retreat, I can't remember if it was Joseph in one of the question periods, uh, quoting that beautiful beginning of the third Zen patriarch's poem, uh, Faith and Mind. He says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When liking and disliking are both absent, the way becomes clear and undisguised. Make the slightest distinction However, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. Pointing to this incredible power of this wanting and not wanting, liking and not liking. And in those moments when that wanting and not wanting is absent, the way is clear and undisguised. So in meditation, we can get really bent out of shape in a way. Um, Looking for experiences looking for experiences that we have had before or experiences that we would like to have 
or experiences that we think we should have because we think that whatever uh, freedom we're looking for, you're obviously all here for some reason. We think that the freedom we're looking for is going to be found in an experience. It's a very deeply conditioned belief that we seem to carry. Universal, I think. That it's going to be found in an experience. And what we discover, one of the things we discover as we sit is that these experiences are coming and going. And they don't last. Even the really nice ones. But often we're holding out for that one experience. And we even if we're holding out in a little way, in a subtle way, just in that moment, heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. And when heaven and earth are infinitely apart, it's a long way to heaven. You might need a, I don't know, a rocket ship. How do you get there? Far away. We find that, yeah, you know, the objects that we would like, uh, job, relationship in the world, uh, material possessions, money. We think that these are going to be, bring lasting happiness. And that's, uh, we can spend a lot of energy. It's not that those things are bad. Uh, They can be wonderful. It's not that you shouldn't work for them either. But if you believe that that's where peace lies, Uh, the rat race never ends. And who said that thing about the rat race? The problem with the rat race is that you're always a rat. I can't remember. Somebody. So it's craving for uh, sense objects and experience. And the craving for becoming. Hmm. Uh, thinking that uh, we need to be something that we're not. Some identity. If we only had some new identity 
better version of me, new and improved. Then, will 2.0. And a lot of the spiritual thing, you know, can be kind of motivated by that. There can be this belief that, oh, when I, when I'm have more realization, I, I won't really be me anymore. I'll be this new thing, new personality. Everybody will like me. We love, especially in America, we love these kinds of um, feel-good success stories. And sometimes our meditation can become like that. It's like the... cheesy movies where we're the hero and we're going to arrive at some glorious new uh, identity fixed. The mirror image of this, it's almost like talking about the same thing. I realize both sides are in this, is this desire for unbecoming. They're so close together as to almost be the same. The desire to not be certain things that we are, certain things that we think we are. The underlying delusion is that we believe that we can be defined by uh, uh, objects, traits, mental, physical, We fix our identity. We look for our identity in uh, momentary phenomena of mind and body. So because we're identified with this phenomena that's arising right here and this stuff in here, when I think this this is me, course, then I have to improve it to get the better version or get rid of it to also get the better version. But I'm going to posit something, and maybe you've glimpsed this or are glimpsing this, that who and what we are cannot be defined by anything, anything that can be perceived, any object uh, of experience, including body, feelings, mind, in terms of thoughts. But because we do feel that we are sort of 
fixed in this identity, whatever it is in the moment. Uh, there's a desire to change it. Just a simple example is um, you may be sitting here uh, sensing the body, body breathing, the sense of being aware of that, feelings arising in the body, sensations coming and going, changing. You're aware of that, maybe not too identified with it. You just see, oh, it's just phenomena. Empty phenomena rolling on, as Joseph says. Maybe an emotion arises. There's the knowing of it. Moving through, no problem. Fear, sadness. Maybe thoughts are arising in the mind. You can see them arise, live out their life, and pass away. Not too identified, it's just see, oh, it's just arisings. Then something arises. Maybe it's a thought, a belief, and it's different. I can't do this. I'm worthless. I'm no good. And that feels different. That feels like, no, that's me. Uh, And then there's the desire, obviously, to uh, not be that person. The craving for non-being. The only reason that craving uh, is there is because we, we've believed that thought. We think, oh, this is, this is me. I am the worthless person. We've taken birth in that identity. I'm the no good meditator, whatever it is. Some of you in the interviews have talked about very repe- some very repetitive uh, patterns of thought or uh, memories uh, that kind of replay themselves over and over again, and that feel really you feel really identified with. Like, I don't know, this is me. This is, you know, I am this kind of person. I did this. Sometimes they're just. Uh, self-judging thoughts, just repetitive. So, you know, what's the way out in a way? It definitely leads to a feeling of craving for unbecoming. How do I not be this person? But the way to not be that person is to see clearly how the belief that you're this person is arising. It's not actually, because it's based in delusion, the work is not to become someone else. It's to see clearly, to see through it. 
And sometimes it takes a lot of uh, repetitive seeing. Uh, one analogy I like to use is, um, yeah, I find it useful, I use it a lot, uh, maybe because I find it useful, is <clears throat> you know, the first time you go to a movie, say it's a th- like a thriller, uh, a scary movie, you're, you're on edge. You're really wrapped up in the plot. Uh, I mean, you know, the, there's that wind blowing and the creaky door. And you're, you don't know what's behind it. And you're, if your whole body tenses up, you're totally unaware of this, what's happening in your body. But it's tensing up and, you know, and you can sense that you know the guys behind the door. And, the, and you're, you know, what's going to happen next? And, uh, and the whole movie is spent completely... Uh, I mean, it's like you're there. You're going through all these incredibly strong emotions. And the movie's over, and, you know, you crawl out of the theater. (laughs) I've crawled out of a few movies. Not literally. But But if, if you went to that same movie, and you sat and you watched, if you went to it five times... And you really forced yourself to watch it. It'd be a little different the fifth time than the first time. It'd be, probably be a lot different. It might still be scary. But say you went to that movie 50 times or 100 times. I mean, can you get a feel for it? It would just be boring. And that whatever that emotional connection is to the plot, it just wouldn't be there. I mean, and then the guy, okay, there's a creaky door. And, you know, it's like you, you just, you've been through it too many times. And it would be hard to keep paying attention to it. You'd start looking around the theater to see if something else interesting was happening. And maybe you'd start noticing the people in the theater. That person looks interesting. The movie's still playing. You you might throw popcorn at someone, try to make something happen. And then at a certain point, you might get up and leave. Just be like, I think I've seen this one a few too many times. There's just nothing left in it. This is just a metaphor. Eventually you walk by the theater, you see the sign. I'm a useless, terrible person is playing. (laughs) You know what? I I saw that one about 500 times. I I think I'll go to the beach. Mm-hmm. So, partly this kind of story, it's just encouragement to keep watching the movie. Yeah. Because if you're not really watching the movie, if you don't really stay there with it, watching it, it feels like it's a new movie every time. You know? 
you're not really watching it, if you're just kind of in it, uh, it's like it doesn't lose that. You know, more or less watching it. You don't have to be, don't worry about perfectly watching it. But you know, you got to be and feeling the feelings that come. So we identify uh, deeply with certain patterns or certain movies that are, you know, very compelling for us and others that aren't. Others we can enjoy or we're just not that interested in. Um, There was a time in my practice, I was practicing with uh, Sayadaw Pandita when he was here at the Forest Refuge. And there was a certain period where I had this um, and I'd had this before in my practice, where I had this incredible energetic knot in my chest. And this thing was so painful. And it was just like, I don't know, a rock or something. It was just... And I didn't know what it was about, and it, but it really felt like me. And just somehow subtly, like all of this belief got wrapped up in this knot about, I mean, it's just interesting how this knot was a symbol of my blockage and that I wouldn't be able to progress in the practice because of this block and that it was some kind of karmic obstruction that I had to overcome. I mean, it got really elaborate, you know, without me being super mindful of that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was just amazing the the kind of mm, reality that got created that I lived in for a period of time. I mean, it it just was the way things are to me, the way things were. I thought I had to clear, you know, clear it or whatever. I didn't know how to. And then I, it's interesting when you're interviewing with, at least with Saito Pandita, you know, often the way it worked is you'd be waiting outside the room where he's interviewing with somebody else. And you could often hear the interview of the person before you, which was sometimes really not that helpful. Sometimes it actually was very helpful. And, and just towards the latter part of the retreat, right near the end, actually, I somehow things got switched up and I was behind somebody I'd never met before. And I, this person was having all kinds of very interesting to me experiences, which I thought were very advanced. And his response was, uh, was unexpected for me. He said to this person, he said, it sounds like the knowing is getting stronger. I'd never heard him use that term. Granted, it's through translation, and it could have been my hallucination. Maybe that's just, but that's what I heard. I don't even remember what happened in my interview. <laughs> but I went back to my, to my room and I just 
stayed with the knowing of this knot. And the knot was there, moving, changing, and the knowing just got really, really bright and vivid and obvious. And, and that brightness was not diminishing. And all of the same stuff was happening and it didn't matter at all. The knot was still there. Uh, the mind was totally unaffected by any of it. There's just no sense of identification with this. It was, just, it was a very revealing moment, series of moments for me. It's just another, I'd seen this in other ways, but it was just a very vivid reminder that it really doesn't matter what is happening in the uh, it doesn't matter what you're paying attention to. It doesn't matter the state of your body. It doesn't even matter what's happening in your mind. And this knowing is, is it's here. It's not something constructed. It's it's right here. I mean, is there anybody for whom knowing is not happening? You're not having experience at this moment? No. It's fully operating all the time. But we get so tuned to the objects and identified with them that we don't we think that's where the rub is. Yes. Something's supposed to happen. The objects are supposed to change, or I'm, you know, my body's supposed to be different, or my mind is supposed to be different. There's supposed to be different thoughts happening in here. Someone changed the channel or changed the program. And I think it takes a long time for us to get that uh, we don't have to change the program. The uh, liberation can be here and now, just in not identifying with this. And we're practicing this in moments, just with the breathing, with rising of sensation. Another, an example of this uh, kind of unbecoming thing which is just sort of a simple example but it was kind of compelling for me was that one of my little unbecoming cravings used to be that I would 
often feel socially awkward. This is a feeling of awkwardness, which I really didn't like. And it really felt like me. Awkward. What do I say? And I really thought that I had to overcome this so to not be awkward. And then things would just be a lot better. And it was just interesting over time to see how and there were particular moments when this just was very obvious. You know, I, I was practicing at the time. When I was in the middle of a social situation and one of these moments would happen, just, and it just didn't matter at all. So, you know, it's just a really awkward moment. And here we are. And the irony of that is that the awkwardness kind of disappears because you're not afraid of it. If If you can be really okay being how you are, it changes something. So sometimes we think that the direction of practice has become less who we are But what I found is actually, we kind of become more who we are, who we already are. Maybe a little less fearful, a little less neurotic. But who we are, that that doesn't disappear. It actually is more comfortable being, being things as they are. And sometimes, again, I go to nature because nature is such a uh, good example of this things as they are. And we don't tend to impart on nature what we impart on ourselves. You know, we don't, we might look at a pine tree that's sort of crooked and gnarled and has a, you know, a sort of very unusual shape to it and think it's very beautiful. We don't wish that it was a straight, tall pine tree. It's, it's just sort of, this is nature, we kind of get it. Oh no. There's these wonderful patterns, they're different. But With ourselves, we don't do that. We don't see nature. We don't see the exquisiteness of things as they are. We don't let ourselves.
And a lot of that is fueled by this, this craving, craving for new objects and experiences, craving for becoming, craving for unbecoming. There's not much room in that for things as they are. So how do we come to rest in things as they are? How do we, uh, how do we, how does our craving get worn down? And partly it's through this clear seeing, which you're all cultivating. Yeah. Seeing that nothing can be clung to. Nothing is substantial or lasts long enough to really provide a lasting ground, no thing. We slowly stop trying to cling. We stop believing in it as much. Because right, you know, our ordinary conditions, we kind of believe in clinging. That's why we do it. We believe that it's going to work. We believe in becoming. We, we think that that's going to work. We believe in unbecoming, and we think that that's going to work. So we invest in it. But as we see clearly, we see, oh, we suffer the pain of that investment. You know, this is Dharma pain, dukkha, and it's liberating. It's the it's what Ajahn Chah called the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is the pain of grasping, which leads to craving. Uh, I'm sorry, grasping, which leads to clinging. I mean, it hurts, doesn't it? Even just in the moment, just that you're meditating, you're fine, and then there's, what about that? Mm, and this dukkha, uns- things become unsatisfactory. When I was in um, college, I was a freshman, I just got there. And at the school that I went to, for some reason, I think this was an old tradition, you had to take a swim test to graduate. You had to pass it. You had to swim the length of a pool. I, I just have no idea why. <clears throat> but the way they did it was they'd line up all the freshmen and they'd have them take the swim test at the beginning so that if they couldn't pass the swim test, then they could, you know, take swimming as gym class or, you know, so that they could graduate. And it's a little weird, you know, <laughs> with, with all these people and you're in a bathing suit and you're lined up at the pool, you know, this long line and you're, you jump in at the deep end and you swim to the other side and you swim back. And then you get checked off the list and you can go to school. <laughs> <clears throat> And I was standing in line, I was back a ways, and I, I noticed there was this guy up ahead who just looked really nervous. <laughs> you know? And you just sort of spot that energetically. This guy was really nervous. He was sort of pacing and fidgeting, and I, I was sort of like, what is going to, what's going on with this guy? And I kind of had this feeling something's about to happen. <laughs> I don't know what. But I really, I want to find out. 
you know? And I watched him, you know, it was his turn, and he went up to the edge of the pool. And I just kind of got, as he stood at the edge of the pool, he does not know how to swim. Like, I mean, I could just, I could see it. And he jumped into the water, the deep end, and just started trying to grab the water, flailing. And he was trying to hold on. And I, I didn't even know a human being could sink that fast. He just went down, you know? Uh, and they had to get him out. You know, it was like they had to get him out, haul him out. And it's, for me, this is a great analogy for uh, practice. You know, we cannot grasp the ungraspable. And when we try, we go down. Swimming is not something that we know how to do intuitively. We might be able to figure it out pretty quickly. But it takes some getting used to the water. There's different rules in the water than there are on land. Yeah? Holding on doesn't work. It's not the nature of water. You can't hold on to it. But if you relax and don't try to hold on to it, you can have a wonderful time in the water. You have to kind of learn how to be in this new way. Water can be wonderful. You can play around, splash, swim, dive. And this phenomenal world is similar. We can have a wonderful time here. It's not that we should not enjoy our life. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy sense contact or relationship or activities or being alive, engaging. It's wonderful. And it's just the grasping and the clinging, that craving for that, the craving that leads to that clinging, which uh, almost interrupts the freedom and ease of uh, living free in this realm. free to enjoy, free to play. You know, sometimes, this is subtle too, but sometimes 
you know, people hear the teachings about uh, craving being the cause of suffering, and they think they're not supposed to want things. So there's this subtle kind of pushing down of wanting. And there can be a subtle kind of disengaging with life. Oh, I'm not supposed to have a preference, you know? What would you like for dinner? I don't care. Yeah. Did you like the movie? I don't know. Which movie do you want to see? I don't have a preference. <laughs> you know, I could get old fast. What do you want to do? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Sometimes actually, uh, there can be this kind of defensive posture around wanting because we want to prevent ourselves from suffering. So we think, I'll just stop the wanting, then I won't suffer. But actually, practice is the opposite direction, in my opinion. The instruction's always the same. Can you be with what's arising? When wanting's arising, be with wanting. It's not that, you know, if I want to take a walk and I do, is that suffering? If I want to have, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a dining hall example. If I want to have kale instead of <laughs> Brussels sprouts, <laughs> is that suffering? What if I like, I don't like kale that much actually. What if I like uh, Brussels sprouts? Is that a problem? You know, so this is, no, this is, this is life energy. Yeah. It has a very different energy than the craving that I was describing earlier. I don't know if you can feel that, but it's different. That craving has a desperation in it. It's a search for security, or it's, it's different. And sometimes I can only just act it out even. It's, it has this kind of, it feels a little bit more like this kind of addict. You know, people who are, have addiction, when you have an addiction to something, you're not enjoying it that much. You're not enjoying it much at all generally because you're a prisoner of some energy of craving. Yeah. So it's different. Yeah. You know, it's vulnerable to want things. And the practice is opening to that vulnerability to really want. Yeah. When you can really be with wanting and really be with disappointment, it opens up a lot. You don't have to be afraid anymore. The reason you're afraid of wanting is because you're afraid of being disappointed, not getting it. But if you can be with the, the not getting it, then you're free to engage. So in that sense, um, 
I mean, just in that sense, I think this just opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, So the instructions are simple, and you've heard them a million times. And somehow it never hurts to hear them again, because it's hard for us to remember. Just this, just this, just this. Just being with what's arising right now, knowing it. It all unfolds from there. All the great dramas that happen in practice are overcome through this, not through anything else, as much as it may seem that, but there really is something to unbecome and there really is something to become. Let's just sit for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.